How are we doing today, folks? My guest today is going to be Denny Morrison. Denny is a four-time Olympian and four-time Olympic medalist, including an Olympic gold medal in speed skating for Team Canada. In this episode, we go through and discuss Denny's journey. We touch on a lot of the trials and tribulations he's had to overcome, including a horrific motorcycle accident and suffering a stroke, all before coming back and competing in the 2018 Olympic Games in Pyeongchang. We also touch on what continues to drive Denny each and every day and his career after athletics. I hope you folks enjoy this episode. Also, on Denny's behalf, In the Arena is donating $250 to the Branch Out Neurological Foundation. Branch Out was founded by one of our former guests, Crystal Phillips. And the Branch Out Neurological Foundation takes tech solutions and non-pharmaceutical approaches to neurological disorders, including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, depression, multiple sclerosis, concussion, epilepsy, and all kinds of different things. So I hope you folks enjoy this episode and please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks. Thanks. How did you kind of get into uh, speed skating? You know, I mean, it seems like it's, 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 you know, such a huge part of your life. I mean, four Olympic cycles and um, highs and lows and everything in between with, with an athletic career. So how, how did you kind of fall into uh, speed skating? It's funny because I've been asked that question so many times and I have like a pretty like structured answer for it. But now I'm retired from speed skating and I'm far enough removed where I'm realizing that like, I don't know how any of my teammates got into speed skating either. So I've been like kind of asking teammates that I've known for like, you know, five or 10 years. Like, how did you guys get into speed skating? Because <laughs> like, uh, but my, my story started in Northern British Columbia. I was born in Chetwin, BC. And uh, I'm known as being from Fort St. John because I moved there when I was four and that was the club I grew up with. Mm -hmm. um, but basically... Um, I started, I guess, in speed skating, um, not until Fort St. John, but my brother started in Chetwind and I went to parent taught skate with my mom and then, um, my brother is two years older than me. And so when he was in the club in Fort St. John, I just sort of, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be as tall as him and as strong as him, as fast as him and as cool as him and as awesome as him in every way. And so, uh, that was something that, you know, looking back again, it's like, Everything he did was like he would break a BC record at what and for whatever age group, and then two years later, I would want to, you know, uh, break that record. Break that record, yeah. And so when you talk about psychology, it's like I was making uh, decisions autonomously at a young age, setting goals, and uh, you know, and without even knowing it. And that was sort of the the beauty of, of sport at a young age. I was just having fun, and uh, but yeah, I had my brother there to set the example and set the bar, and I was just constantly chasing him. Um, and I chased him right to Junior Worlds um, in 2003, went together to Japan, and then I chased him, uh, he moved to Calgary two years before me, and then we both trained with the national team in Calgary, um, him starting in 2001, me starting in 2003, so, um, and the rest is history, then four Olympics later, and I'm almost finished my university degree. <laughs> well, I mean, it's super interesting, I mean, especially with a lot of different people that I've, I've had on the show before, and it is just... <laughs> so prevalent in athletics the the sibling like syndrome you know mm -hmm. you have that older brother older sister someone that you kind of just chase along and you're either trying to just be like them or you want to be you know seen as you're on that same level like playing ground oh i'm just as good as my older brother or older sister or whatever it may be and exactly. it's amazing how much that that can can drive someone to to try to you know 
be their best or, or just go out to, you know, get some approval from their sibling. Like, Hey, you're doing a pretty good job. Uh, yeah. So it's super interesting to hear that, uh, you know, that you have that, that good uh, support from your brother. And, and I mean, the, the sibling rivalry that sometimes exists, sometimes doesn't exist, but it's always kind of, it's always kind of there. Yeah. And I think it can work. And again, I just keep thinking psychology stuff right now, but I think it can work um, obviously for and against to like, Mm-hmm. obviously my brother was a speed skating I wanted to be in speed skating and it was like a sibling rivalry but he, he also like supported me and uh, guided me a lot and so it worked and so we both stuck on speed skating but I can totally see how at a young age you know the younger kid maybe catches up with the older kid and then the older kid doesn't like that so the older kid moves away from sport and then goes into something else and you end up uh, with the uh, diverting paths or something like that but uh, I think ultimately it speaks a little bit to maybe just our you know, our, our privilege, like my parents gave us the opportunity to play every sport from a young age and in elementary school, like soccer team, badminton, volleyball, basketball, uh, track and field, sort of, you name it. And it was the one that I enjoyed the most. And therefore I think I was the most successful at and, uh, carried it on throughout my life. Now, did you specifically stick with, I mean, were you like hell bent on it being speed skating the whole time? Or did you do all those other sports as well? Like, okay, I'm going to, I mean, when did you specifically like, I'm all in on speed skating. This is what I want to do. Well, I remember in grade five, so I was 10 years old where I said I wanted to go to the Olympics and I want to win a gold medal. Right. Mm-hmm. So even just saying that as a 10 year old, I think uh, means something. And it's cool for me when I speak to other schools and stuff, you might, I might meet a speed skater or a, or a hockey player or something and how they say, I want to play on team Canada or something. And it's like, just saying that, like, that means they already have some type of belief or they already have that in the back of their head as a long-term goal. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really, like, neat to see for me at this point in my life and career. Um, but I guess elementary school, I sort of did all the sports, uh, grade 8, uh, 9, 10, and Fort St. John, that was, like, uh, junior high. And that's where I focused more on basketball, volleyball. And then mm-hmm. volleyball carried on through high school. And that would have been my, like, if I was to be a summer Olympian and if I was to be, you know, eight inches taller, um, <laughs> I, I still to this day love playing volleyball, but, um, you know, but even with a pretty solid speed or vertical uh, jump, um, you know, I, I can't compete with uh, guys so much taller than me. And so there you go. It's like, I autonomously chose not to continue with volleyball because, you know, right. but, yeah. So, yeah, so it kind of started with all the sports and dwindled down. And even uh, when I moved to Calgary in the off-season and stuff like that, I loved, like, mountain biking in the off-season instead of, you know, we do a ton of biking and, and cycling. Sorry, do a ton of cycling and speed skating. Mm-hmm. Like road cycling usually because you can really control your watts and your efforts and everything. And it, sure. it's like legs and uh, lungs and heart and stuff. So it's just uh, really complement speed skating well for the training aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would always try to get on my mountain bike or, you know, uh, do a cross country ski or just uh, anything to change it up. I love the variety of sport. And I think that was one of the things that in the long run helped me, uh, well, A, stay in the sport for so long and, and B, like recover from injury um, as well as I did in some cases because I um, enjoyed, you know, adapting to new movements and uh, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, make things work. Now, with speed skating, how prevalent is is injury? I mean, does it happen like a fair amount or is it like, I mean, compared to, most sports because I mean like with skiing I mean it's 
pretty certain if you have like a 10 year career, you're going to spend a season with a torn ACL or, or something like that. So I'm just curious with, with speed skate. I mean, is that nicks and bruises are obviously part of it, but, but are there, are there major? It's nowhere near uh, skiing. That's for sure. Like mm -hmm. skiing's hard on the knees and most of my injuries in my career are not really speed skating related. <laughs> like I separated my shoulder. I don't know if you can see it, but in a mountain bike crash and broke my leg, crossed the skiing. And then of course my motorcycle crash broke my femur and done stuff and et cetera, et cetera. So I don't, people fall speed skating and, and especially in short track, cause there's like the short track around the hockey rink and then there's a long track that I did on the 400 meter oval. Mm -hmm. So short track has a few more concussions and more cuts. Actually, I, back from my career in short track, I don't know if you can see it, but I have this yeah. kind of wonky cut on my arm like that. Yeah. The blade will come in and just slice and just have a little flap of <laughs> hanging there. So I think um, those cuts are probably as prevalent in speed skating as knee injuries are in skiing gotcha. but okay. but uh you know i got like i think 77 stitches there but you know that was 2001 and whatever like it, you know negligible now never right. uh my career on hold or anything like that but besides that i think from the starts we're really you know you push off the start and then you sort of hyper extend your uh hip flexors sometimes and people mm -hmm. pull their groins a lot and so sort of soft tissue injuries like that um gotcha. and ankle injuries because the boots like i don't know so it's more small injuries. Probably the ankles is uh, the career ruiner. And back in the day, we used to do a ton of hurdle hops. Like, and people always okay. try to show off by going a little higher than maybe they should. And then there's, there's a number of disc injuries. So hurdle hops have kind of been eliminated from speed skating because uh, this in the spine, it's not a good injury to have. And that's like a lifelong setback sort of thing. So, Gotcha. Yeah, because I was always kind of curious what kind of, especially, you know, um, watching the Olympics and stuff like that. I mean, there are always such gnarly crashes that, you know, someone will slip out and then next thing you know, everyone's kind of down for the count. So it's kind of curious what kind of yeah, soft tissue or some of those injuries you kind of, you kind of go through. Yeah. That's going to be short track where they're racing a pack and a long track is just sort of one-to-one -one and you are head to head, but you're also against the overall clock for the fastest time trial, basically. So mm -hmm. um, the worst that happens in long track is in the 500 meter typically. Mm -hmm. The second turn is like blazing fast. They're going over 60k an hour, and they're mm -hmm. pulling a pretty tight radius. And uh, the guy on the inside falls, and the guy on the outside is just wrapping around the track at the right time. The guy on the inside will fall and take him out. And uh, super exciting for the crowd. Probably <laughs> one of the more uh, entertaining parts of the sport for fans, but uh, can be pretty scary for the athletes. And you, you know, you see guys jump the one who falls, and then you know, blades are in the air and cuts are. Uh, prevalent in that okay uh situation as well so but yeah so when it comes to uh, i mean at least your preparation in that sport and time i mean how much uh competition would you go through in a, in a given year and what kind of cycle would that um be like because you, you know you spend a lot of time on this you know biking and stuff like that and then that competition period because they have ovals all over i mean is it i mean do they keep it in the winter or do they you guys get a few races in in the summer as well or, or how do they kind of break that up for you um every oval is different like around the world but yeah um obviously the vancouver olympics uh, had the oval built there and now it's uh, more of just a multi-sport community center for the city of richmond and they don't ever put the ice in because it costs too much and they have in place of the old, like, one speed skating track, they have, you know, they have two short track, like, two hockey rinks, like, I think eight basketball courts, a 200-meter running track, and, like, three badminton courts. Okay. Um, or you could have one oval, right? So it's yeah. sort of, like, what's going to get the most use? Right. Of, uh, uh, 
no hard feelings against Richmond for taking their ice out, but uh, I guess they are always capable of putting it back in. Calgary, though, where the national team uh, trains mostly, uh, they usually put the ice in in like May or June mm-hmm. if, uh, if all goes well. And then, um, yeah, and then the season will end in March of the next year. So April is sort of the off season. Um, May is when they'll do start doing tons of cycling and dryland training. Um, and sort of the, the speed skating season generally starts off with like super high volume, very low intensity. And then as the season progresses, they sort of, by September, they're sort of, it's the hardest month because, you know, more weights, uh, still lots of volume. Yeah. You're preparing to race. So your body's just trained in a whole bunch of different ways, mm-hmm. um, power and endurance sort of aspects. And then as the racing season progresses, right, it's all intensity and uh, volume is just sort of dependent on how much you want to maintain your aerobic capacity um, mm-hmm. later in the season. It's more of just a recovery tool than uh, training the system for longevity, sort of. So that's why, like, at the end of uh, a season, like, you just wipe. Like, when you peak for – you you know this from your sport and other sports. When you peak for that competition, it's like you're – it's impossible to maintain that level of exertion or performance for more than, like, a week or two because your body will just uh, shut down. So. Mm-hmm. Now, what was it like for you that first time kind of going into Calgary and, and getting to check out kind of that facility and everything else as you're kind of going up the trajectory of, okay, I want to go to the Olympics. I want to win gold. I want to go through that. So, so as a young kid going through and, and those moments, was it, was it pretty exciting to be able to check out that venue and be like, okay, I'm, I'm moving, I'm moving up the totem pole here. Absolutely. And I remember going to the old for the first time and I didn't really understand you know, the Olympics or whatever, or the Oval even, but I knew that we were going to the Olympic Oval. And I think this is 91, so I would have been like six. And um, shortly after the 88 Games, obviously, whether for a training camp or whatever, and I just remember telling my teammates, like, I don't, I don't even, I don't get it. We're at the Olympics. Like, how cool is this? Like, we are like, wow, I knew we were like pretty good for six-year-olds, but like, we were at the Olympics now. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's this huge building. It's just so grand. And, um, you know, when it's not COVID times, like, tourists are coming and going all the time and they just walk into the big mezzanine and there's like, wow, you know, like it's, uh, it's astonishing. And, uh, and now they hang from the rafters, uh, the sort of the wall of fame from speciators who have trained at that oval, who have won Olympic medals uh, mm-hmm. while training at the Calgary Oval. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to say that one day my picture will hang there once uh, they, they put one up every time Calgary hosts the World Cup sort of thing. And so, oh, okay. We're almost backlogged because of the number of Olympians who have won medals while training at the Oval, and uh, so it's it's cool to think of like those two ends of that uh, the journey that I was on, right? The little kid looking up to the rafters, being like, "We're at the Olympics," to um, being in the rafters and hopefully inspiring the next little kid who comes into the the Oval and looks around. Yeah, no, that's that's super super cool. So going in now and, and looking like later on, moving forward a little bit to finally getting to the Olympics in, in Torino and going to do that experience, uh, what, what is that like for you at that point in time? And looking back now, what, what is the – because, you know, there's two different mindsets, right? There's the mindset when you're in the moment, you're trying to go out, you're trying to do your best at the time, and now reflecting back, looking back at that kind of – first olympics and i mean for you that was the first of four so you had several opportunities to kind of soak things up and everything else but kind of reflecting back on that what were some of those main main takeaways for you yeah i don't know i feel like i learned a lot more from my second olympics in vancouver and then kind of carried that into my 2014 experience 
because the, the first Olympics was just that. It was the first Olympics. It was my first sure. experience and my first realization that what you see on TV, it's all polished and beautiful. Like you show up for your Olympic events, you know, weeks early or even a year early for the world champs the year before. Mm-hmm. And then you show up for the Olympics, it looks nothing the same. There's all these, you know, corrals everywhere and it's, everything's very temporary, it feels like. Whereas gotcha. uh, I always expected it to be more like a permanent uh, venue or something like that. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, that was something I always found disappointing, I guess, too, because I trained in Richmond since 2008 up to the 2010 games. I sort of just, you know, was really comfortable walking from my condo to the Oval in Richmond. And uh, and then, of course, when the Olympics hits, you have to, like, walk way further around the Oval through security, yeah. through the basement, so, like, into the change room, and then uh, whatever, you know, your warm routine has changed and things like that. Um or something that I try to warn other athletes about when they go to World Cups or uh, World Champs even is different than World Cups. And then the mm-hmm. Olympics is even more strict than that. So um, just allowing myself to be a bit more flexible because I would try to be so strict about like, here's what I, here's how my process works. Here's how my race morning routine works or my training morning routine. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything's going to be a little bit more different at the Olympics. And so you have to adapt to just give yourself even like, whatever, a few, few more minutes of buffer zone on every <laughs> movement around the building that you feel like you need to do. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's definitely some, some good information for those out there aspiring and, and everything else that you kind of have to allow the, the flexibility and the, and the change that inevitably is going to happen as you start to go through, you know, I mean, for us, we would always, you always have to deal with the weather and, and everything else, you know, you're not always going to have that gorgeous, like, bluebird day and the course is going to be great you're going to have to deal with some shitty weather here and there and you're going to have to deal with a lot of different kind of aspects and things like that to throw you kind of out of that routine and, and everything else and you kind of have totally. a little bit of i've had visualizations i mean just for that very reason like it's a bigger part of like you i feel like it's quintessential like olympic shot is there's the mogul steer at the top of their run and it's just you can barely see them through the snow that's falling in front of the goggles on and uh yeah, because like, I don't, I don't, I don't even know. You tell me when you go down uh, the course with that much snow, you just, you know, you know the feel, you know the flow of the course, and and for the most part, usually you have a pretty good eye. Like, they you can usually see pretty well because usually the judges are at the bottom. If they can't see the top, they're not. You know, it'll be a course fog hold right. or whatever out, and they won't allow you to go. So yeah. usually, um, and also what they, they call it like pine bow, but essentially it's chopped up like pine needles and stuff like that. They throw on the course to kind of give you depth perception cool. and, and stuff like that. So usually you have like a little bit of an idea and you can, you can see fairly, fairly well, but it does, you know, I think most people and have this perception or, or when they go through of like, okay, this is, you know, they're doing their visualization or they're thinking about the pristine day and nine out of 10 times it never really works out that way absolutely right yeah, yeah. totally so for your preparation uh, kind of on that on that mental side i mean w- what was it for i mean you you know it sounds like you said you had a pretty strict like routine that you would like to follow and everything else and we touched a little bit on the psychology and stuff like that i mean did you have a strict kind of mental plan and and mental approach that that you would go through or were you pretty lacks on that like how how kind of what was the the basis so i'm just pulling up my phone because i have it right here yeah. so i basically and i won't be able to show it maybe i can send it to you later something but basically i february 13 2018 my 2018 olympic 1500 meter race 
Um, and I would always start from like the night before they would do the drawing. Um, we know that like, um, we know that the competition starts at um, whatever time it starts at, like let's say that it's uh, 8 p.m. or something. And then I'm here 13, I'm in the outer lane. And so usually if things are on schedule with TV timing, it's like bang, bang, bang. So you can do the math and you're like, hey, I'm pair 13 outer, I'm raising at 9.08 p.m. And then I went backwards and I was like 9.56, I want to be on ice. That's for pair 10. So like if there's an ice delay or whatever, it's like 9.56 doesn't matter anymore. It's like pair 10 is when I want to be on ice, right? And then I'm going right. to warm up on ice and prepare for my race. And then I go backwards all the way um, to like, when I'm asleep the night before, when I'm waking up the next day or the morning of, uh, when sure. I'm having breakfast and when I'm basically when I'm eating, um, when I'm warming up, when I'm in the bathroom, when I'm walking to the oval. And so when I said there's five minute buffers, it's for the Olympics. I kind of give myself a little extra time uh, so that I'm not like running behind or stressed out. Mm -hmm. um, so this whole like uh, thing, I don't know if you can see it very well, but no. <laughs> oh, there, there, it is. there it is. Yeah. It would, uh, it would just basically, as far as mental preparation goes, it would just be like, you know, on race day when you're like, oh, I should sit down. I don't want my legs to be tired. Okay, I need to stand up. I need to move around, get the blood flowing. Okay, I'm going to sit on the bike. I'm going to go rest. And I should stretch. And then you kind of uh, mm -hmm. can get really into these cycles of like, you're never doing the right thing. You always want to do something else. And then you forget what you should actually be doing. So this would help me stay on track and just like, all right, right now, not even right in here, like between breakfast at 10.45 a.m., and well, it's uh, three thirty p.m. I had a progressive uh, spin to get my heart rate going. Mm -hmm. I just put chill, just like relax, don't like, don't do yeah. anything. Like, sure. And uh, just those reminders, right? And mm -hmm. it's funny because uh, since that Olympic race, I did some other races, finishes off, and then I wrote the MCAT to prepare for med school, and uh, like did the same thing for my MCAT sort of thing. Like, yeah. this is my sitting time. This is when I'm gonna check in. This is when we eat, arrive. This is when I leave my house. Uh, go to the bathroom, things like that, right? And so then I uh, did that for my interviews as well, which I guess didn't work, but that's, so it's, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's always been a way to calm me down and just keep me like a bit more like, it's like starts me off in the flow almost before the, like once the gun goes on race day, it's like, this is the easy part. I've prepared all year for this, mm -hmm. but um, you know, you don't always prepare as well uh, for the morning of the race day mm -hmm. uh, as you can for the, the race itself. No, that's, I mean, that's super interesting. It's very specific and it's very detailed. And, uh, you know, it's interesting from different people we've kind of had on the show, kind of some of those tactics that they use when they're either an athlete or they use now to kind of plan out their week and kind of attack their, their day to day. And it's interesting, you know, some people have their entire month just planned out like, okay, this is exactly, you know, kind of what's going to happen. You have other people that are like, yeah, just kind of fly by the seat of the pants, maybe the day of I'll throw in one extra thing here or there. So I always find yeah. it super interesting to kind of break in and, and kind of see, see what works for you. Now, when you were kind of building out this kind of detailed plan and, and everything else, did you have a sports psych or did you just kind of like, you know what, this feels right for me because otherwise I'll be way too frazzled and I'll be running around from the bike and maybe I need to do this and you stretch more and you do that. So what, what kind of was it for you? I guess it was, you start with a sports psych probably, probably in 2006, seven sort of thing. I don't okay. think it was, I don't think I was doing that in 2006, 2007 really sticks out in my mind. And in fact, um, once I did it a few times and I got comfortable with it, he sort of recorded me talking through each step of the thing. Like, this is where I'm 
um, you know, whatever. I, I just showed up at the Oval. I had breakfast earlier, whatever. I'm going to the change room now. I'm not in a hurry. Um, but I know that in five minutes, I need to be out on the track to warm up for practice today or whatever. And then, so now I'm going to warm up for like 20 minutes and do some calisthenics or whatever it was. And then now I'm on the stretching mat or whatever. If it's race day, I'm going to go get a massage right now, like pre-race shakeup, and then go back to the change room, uh, get my skating stuff on, head out of the tunnel, take my time, like tie my laces, whatever, whatever. And just sort of, again, it's like a verbal, like an out loud verbal visualization. And then I can watch the video and remind myself of, uh, you know, like that self-affirmation of like, here's what I do. Here's what works for me. Right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I did, it did like, obviously it changed over the years and I built in those buffers again, probably, um, probably after 2010 even. Um, but yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I, I, I still, I, the more I talk about it, the more I actually get my mind, like goes back right into like, it's race day. Like <laughs> my heart starts uh, beating and uh, like in a good way, I'm like, oh, I'm really excited to get going. Let's do this. Like what's next? Let me check my phone. <laughs> I was this is before phones, I always wrote it on a little piece of paper. And so in the hotel room the night before, I would write that down and then visualize my race once only and then fall asleep. And uh, that can make it hard to fall asleep for some people. But for me, if I just told myself one visualization, the perfect race, and then cut it off there, mm -hmm. um, then uh, that became part of the routine as well. And I should say that like this is like, you know, the 24 hours maximum pre-race, right. this whole routine. Sure. Um, but extending beyond that, that's where like my coach, he's writing the program, starting with that graph. I was talking about the volume that Charlie's using and then the intensity coming up on race day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's all planned out. And like to have trust in your coach, I think I was super lucky in my career. I only had two coaches and sometimes people in the speed setting world, they, oh, this coach isn't working for me. I don't like the program, whatever the reason. And then they try this other one, try this other one. And, uh, I think it's important. These coaches are all professionals or experts and, Right. Um, maybe I was just really lucky in having some really great coaches, um, but I think it was key that I trusted them and I trusted uh, the program they had me on uh, to bring me the results um, that I needed on race day. So I almost, it literally took all of that stress off the table for me so that the race day stress, I could uh, focus on how to deal with that and handle that. Now, with some of that trust you're kind of, you're, you're touching on, I mean, did, did you going into those relationships, you know, with those, those couple coaches that you had, did you just, were you open enough to kind of have that trust? Or are you like, okay, I've heard that these guys know what they're doing. I'm going to say, is there apprehension there? Because I mean, I definitely in athletics and uh, even in the business world with, when you're dealing with different people, uh, that can be one of those interesting things of like, okay, do I really want to trust this person? Is this going to be in my best interest or, uh, and especially, you know, something so personal as your athletic career, it's definitely, something that that can be difficult to kind of be open and allow yourself i mean it's easier for others and for others it's definitely not so i'm just kind of curious for you absolutely and i think well i want to start with like early career and i want to end with like the 2010 olympics um because um that's where my trust uh in myself maybe got rattled a bit but early in my career i think that's where you know when people move to the old we talked about like they finished high school and they're already good speed skaters. They've had their growth spurts or whatever. And they, you know, they want to pursue the Olympics. And every single athlete will probably have some uh, of their own experience with that. And then you're thrown into this program. It's really exciting. But maybe the coach is giving you technical advice or something that's like, 
you know, every, you can see it even like the Fort St. John speed skaters, their skating style is a little bit different than the speed skaters from Coquitlam, BC, or from Quebec. They all have like yeah. this uh, almost like group think, think cultural speed skating technique that mm -hmm. like it's uh, contagious throughout the group because they all skate like that. They've all reinforced that technique from their club coach. And now they all come together in Calgary and, uh, and they're being told some different uh, techniques or to make some different maneuvers. And they all question like, well, I'm already good because I already moved to Calgary to pursue speed skating. Do I need to listen to my coach? Or does that, is that going to work for me as well as it works for this other person? Mm -hmm. And uh, I've seen that over and over for years and years and years. And uh, um, that was one thing that I think Bart was my second coach. So I had two coaches for eight years each. It was Marcel and then Bart. Okay. And two of us each. And uh, Bart just like standardized the technique. He's like, here's the eight points. Anything else that works for you, as long as you're doing these eight points, um, you can throw in your own, like, I call them style points. I don't know what he called it, but he was like, if your style points take away from one of the eight points, then we're going to have to change that because it's uh, it's a waste of energy or something. Mm -hmm. and so, uh, and to me, again, later in my career, as you know, you start questioning like, oh, I used to like be so dialed and now I'm just like out there. <laughs> uh, so it's nice to have like just a foundation. Here's the eight points that like, and I can just be standing and I can just think of the eight points and like draw up like a transformer into the speed hitting position, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, get dialed in but in the eight, first eight years of my career it was Marcel and I think again I was lucky because he coached me at some like regional speed sitting camp up in northern BC it was in Dawson Creek mm -hmm. and I thought it was so cool because you know again when I said in 1995 that I wanted to go to the Olympics one day I want a gold medal then in 1998 Mark Gagnon won two golds in short track speed skating mm -hmm. and uh and Marcel was Mark Gagnon's coach right and so then he came and coached me at this training camp. And I was like, oh, man, I have a national team coach uh, watching me train or whatever. And so that was super cool. And then I moved to Calgary. And he, that year, became a long track coach and took on a group of junior skaters, um, a huge group. Like, I think there was 40 of us. Wow. And, um, and so I think even just having that background uh, experience where I was pumped to have this guy as a coach. And then Marcel, he's from Quebec. He's super passionate about, uh, you know, how he talks. He could motivate anyone uh, to perform their very best on race day if he'd only been coaching them for one day. Like, he's just such a, a passionate and inspirational guy. Um, mm -hmm. So it was really easy for me to, to trust him. Um, but then on the other hand, and this is sort of opening my mind a bit more post-sport, is I think I was getting pretty good results early on, in part because I trusted early on, but it made it easy Therefore, then the coach was asking me what I wanted and what I thought was important because you're building sure. a program sort of together. Mm -hmm. And so it became even easier for, tr for me to trust it and to buy into it, right? So, yeah. More of a collaboration through there. Yeah. yeah. I mentioned I was going to get to the Vancouver Olympics. So that was year eight of Marcel coaching me. Sure. And I did four events at the Vancouver Olympics, the 5K. And that was not my strong event, but I got like 18th or something. It's, that was fine. And then I had the 1,000 meter, the 1,500 meter, and then the team pursuit. And they were all like four days apart. 1,000 mm -hmm. meter, I was ranked like fourth or fifth in the world. 1,500 meter, I was ranked third in the world. And I got like 13th and ninth. And um, this was like, I guess this current event right now, uh, you know, the tennis player, Osaka. Yeah. And he's sort of backed out because of mental health reasons and mm -hmm. getting lots of flack from that, getting lots of support uh, from people. Sure. And... Um, I can kind of see both sides, but I would I want to put myself as a supporter because because of my 
Vancouver experience where those races didn't go my way, you know, and in the moment I crossed the line, saw that I wasn't getting a medal and this breakdown kind of occurs your four year preparation since the last Olympics, you know, I've, I've been a world cup medalist in those two races, uh, the both the last two world champs. And you have five minutes from there to like deal with all that emotional everything. Sure. And, and I feel like in that moment, I was like, I don't know what, I, I don't have answer. I don't know what happened. I can't point to something. And so I was sort of just like in this cloud of, I don't know what, like maybe, maybe I didn't sleep well enough. Maybe my nutrition wasn't right. Maybe I wasn't psychologically prepared. Maybe my program wasn't good. And I, and the media just wants this story, right? So they just <laughs> wrote me out as this villain. And I found there's some headlines that I read the next morning and now I have three days to prepare for my next event. And that was like one of the hardest things I had to deal with in my entire career, uh, mentally, I think for sure. Cause you don't, you don't see that coming. You, you visualize winning and you visualize uh, the prizes and accolades and uh, everything going uh, great. And you know, a lot of these, the sports writers, but then there's lots of non-sports writers at the Olympics. And mm, so sure. they don't give a shit about how you feel. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, if what Osaka is doing is going to prevent something like that from happening, do it. Cause that that media experience where and granted i i, I said the wrong thing we've done media training i, I should have known better mm -hmm. but i shouldn't have been searching for answers and sharing that so openly because <laughs> it came across as like oh it's not my fault it's marcel's fault with the program but right right um, that as i feel like you know just from me talking to you for five minutes i trusted the program <laughs> yeah but, no uh, absolutely but then the media, and I think one of the headlines that I will never forget is Morrison needs an exorcism, right? And they have this shitty picture of me like sniffing, but it looks like I'm really angry, like, like, <laughs> like super big frown and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah. well, there's my Olympic legacy, like sweet deal. Um, so yeah, so that's, sorry, that's my long answer from. No, no, that's super. I mean, it is really one of those things that, um, that, that can almost, you know, luck, fortunately for you, it didn't define you didn't let that define you. But there are those moments. I mean, it, it, what is the you know, the the media expects that cookie cutter, cookie cutter answer and uh, came out did my best didn't go my right. way. Today. Yeah, it didn't go my I'll way today. Yeah. All power to him, you know, da, 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 da. but that's not the that's not the reality. And not everybody can be Roger Federer or Nadal and just lose with like the most insane amount of grace possible. <laughs> yeah, know? totally. Yeah. Oh, it is. Uh, it's something <laughs> to learn from for sure. And yeah, I guess that's why we do media training, but, <laughs> but then you come back a couple days, you know, a few days later in the, in the team event and you win gold on home soil. Yeah. And that was huge. Yeah. And that was like, I, I don't know, like I, I still think to this day, like you said, that media experience doesn't define me, but mm -hmm. And it doesn't define me, it doesn't define who I am, how I maybe was portrayed there, but sure. parts of that experience have defined how I've hopefully moved forward from it. Mm -hmm. um, but more than the media, it was what I realized with my, my teammates after that, despite what I said in the media, despite how I called, like I said stupid things, but my coach or my teammates or whatever, my team pursued teammates were like, hey man, we have a job to do, we have a chance to blow a medal. Like we trust in you. We know you're, you're skating fast. We know you can do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was Matthew Giroux, Lucas Mikowski, and then Marcel as well. They're just like, let's put this behind us. We got to move on. And um, 
you know, it was a lot more than just those two sentences, but, and they really <laughs> helped me like focus on what's important now. And that became one of our sort of slogans for the next four years, leaving it for 2014. What's important now? Like win, right? <laughs> but, um, but, but winning, you know, you know, winning isn't important now. The results are important. It's like the process is what is now and what is important now. And that's, again, helped me define this, uh, redefine my little psychological race prep plan there. And, sure. um, yeah, and they had me back. And then it was like, I finished 1500. I thought I was not going to skate the team pursuit. They brought me out of the gutter. I walked to the team pursuit the morning of the race, still with those, that media and those doubts in the back of my head, thinking to myself, like, because the team pursuit is three rounds. It's sort of like semis, or sorry, quarters, semis, finals. Sure. And if we lose the quarters, you just kind of, you're, you're not going to be on the podium. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, if we lose the quarters, then I'm retiring from speed skating. Like, and that's, you know, that's where, when I think of what Osaka's doing, I'm like, yeah, like, that was hard for me. Like, that, you know, mm -hmm. that was before mental health was maybe in the, the picture as much as it, as it is now. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. Not that I'm going to give her advice, because she's an incredible tennis player who deals with a different level of stress than me. But, uh, yeah, if I could have skipped that media, <laughs> it would have probably, um, you know, changed changed uh hopefully not the outcome because i got a gold three days later but four days later but mm -hmm. would have changed uh maybe the legacy that i have in my own head from the 20 olympics sure um but yeah. also I mean, some of that that perseverance i mean it, it it builds you up and those are some of those those most important things i mean with a lot of the guests that i've had on the show it's not about the achievement of those gold medals it's about the perseverance of through the dark shitty times where people are people and they make mistakes and maybe they, you know, they fuck up an event or they say something that maybe they were, you know, just in the moment things happen. And it's those learning experiences that make you that give you that growth and, and make you that much better. And you're able to learn from it and, and persevere. Cause I mean, you, there are a lot of dark times and I mean, we haven't even touched on the motorcycle accident yet yeah. or the stroke or any, I mean, yeah, and all kind of build and and you grow from those moments, right? I think the growth for me in that whole scenario was my realization of how important teammates are. Mm -hmm. Like I always trust my coach, but like I said, I won World Champ medals and I was getting sponsors, and they were all telling me how good I was. And you know, I I, I can say pretty openly now that I probably didn't, I definitely didn't treat my teammates as like as well as I should have going to the 2010 games. Mm -hmm. So to have them come back and like. I think pretty much every Olympic medal I've ever won is because of my teammates. And that's some perspective that I've gained since 2010. Because like in 2006, it was a similar outcome. We got silver in the team pursuit. It was a team event, 2010. Sort of fell apart in my individual events. Um, but my teammates were there for me. My coach was there for me. And we uh, we ended up winning gold. Um, and there's like just adding on to the mental uh, thing. In Torino, we got silver to uh, the home crowd, the Italians. Mm -hmm. And then the first round of 2010, we were against the Italians through the Olympic record holders. Um, the ones we got silver to at my last Olympic race against these guys, right? And uh, so it was like, what's going to happen, right? Uh, but like I say, the team is sat me down. They're like, okay, hey, here's the plan. We know the plan. Here's your job. Here's my job. Here's my job. Mm -hmm. I know we can each do our job. Let's just go out there, stay in the moment, do our jobs. And we... Beat Italy by like four seconds, got an Olympic record, 
moved on to the semis. Uh, took on Norway later that day, about 90 minutes later. Uh, beat them by two seconds, a new Olympic record again, and went to the finals. So compared to walking to the Oval that morning, thinking to myself, we lose this race, I'm going to retire from speed skating, and then walking home at the end of the day, knowing that I was going to win either a gold or a silver medal the next day, depending on the outcome of the final, was uh, a pretty huge change in, uh, <laughs> um, you know, mental attitude or, or whatever. Not even attitude. Like, my attitude was still just sort of, like, weird. But yeah, uh, motivation had probably I mean, increased at that point. After so after that goal, I mean, did you how how much kind of soul searching did it take for you to be like, okay, do I want to come back and go another Olympic cycle? Do I just want to finish out the season and and be done? Or you know how how much time did it kind of take for you to to find the passion again or, or find whatever that is because that is a difficult thing that happens in in all of sport and even after sport, right? You're trying to find that direction and, and kind of what's next. Uh, so for you, after those kind of moments, was it the, the, the low and then you get the high of winning gold home soil with the, I mean, that's unbelievable. And then yeah. it's like, okay, do I want to, you know, that 72 hour period of I'm done, I'm out. And how much does that kind of change for you? Yeah. I mean, just as you're asking the question, I think there was like the micro version of like the bouncing back to like come back from 1500 and the media. And then we're on the top of the podium, home crowd, prime ministers in the crowd, family and friends are in the crowd. It was like an amazing experience. But like I was saying, like uh, mental health wise, I was not in a good place for the next year, basically. And uh, um, so that's the macro, like. Yeah. I pretty much missed a whole season. I think that with the team pursuit, again, we ended up getting silver world champs the next year. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I, I, you know, I trained, but it, the head wasn't really in the game. And this is where I moved to Bart and Mike as my new coaches. Okay. And then sort of following that season is where we created uh, the team diamonds. And um, this was like almost the beginning of me and Gilmore Jr.'s story. Um, I'll spare all the details, but basically that diamonds are created under, you know, the most immense pressure in the world and that, you know, to get a perfect diamond uh, on the showroom, which, you know, we consider race day, like a showroom diamond yep. requires like thousands and thousands of hours of polishing and cutting and honing uh, to get this like perfectly clear, sharp, uh, harder than rock um, diamond performance. And, uh, and every single time that you make an excuse uh, during training or for being late or for any reason and the excuse is a blemish in the diamond that you're going to put out on the showroom and so we want to have the perfect diamond at the olympics in 2014 um so don't make any excuses in the lead up right so that's uh, that was almost like uh, the team philosophy we were the diamonds and you know nike sponsored me because i you know i still had a uh, good go with them um for a few years after the olympics and uh, so I made everyone Team Diamonds uh, t-shirts and they said, like, I run to be. Mm -hmm. um, it was all the diamond qualities, like, perfect, clear, flawless, um, um, things like that. And that was cool. It was, like, a really cool team dynamic because we all bought into it and we all wanted, sure. uh, you know, we'd hold each other, each other accountable. And, um, you know, it wasn't so much competition between each other, but rather we're all trying to collaborate. We're all trying to uh, get the same goal. And in all in, so the 2010 experience turned into this team diamond, no excuses, team philosophy sure. in one line is just that, you know, I made this realization that in order to achieve individual goals requires working as a team. 
And sure enough, how it all panned out with me and Gilmore in 2014, um, I fell out the Olympic trials. Um, he was in, in, the, in one of the thousand meter spots and I was the alternate. So I wasn't even going to skate the thousand and he gave up his spot, let me skate the thousand because he thought I had a better chance at winning a medal for Canada. And that was my first ever um, individual medal, right? But yeah. it still came as a result of, of teamwork. So um, no, I, don't know, I think it really came full circle from 2010 sure. to that yeah. moment in time. And that was uh, a big moment for me personally. And, uh, and I think it was a moment that a lot of Canadians can relate to where we have to work together. And the other thing I like to add in too is that when we won gold in Vancouver, it was me from BC Lucas from Saskatchewan and Matthew Giroux from Quebec, you know, spanning Canada, working together to uh, stand on top of the podium for Canada. It was, uh, you know, working as a team is how we can get our best results. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's amazing to see the growth, especially from, you know, 2010 to 2014 and how that becomes the motto and the team and to be able to, to have that buy-in and the growth and have each one, you know, all of you kind of push each other at that same time. Cause it's so much uh, more difficult when you're kind of in this individual sport, right? Like you're all under one nation and it's just, it's same thing in skiing, right? You're it's you against the course for the most part. And sometimes yeah. we'll do duels and you'll be against somebody, but it's very much of like an individualistic thing. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, the guy that beats you is your teammate and like, you're happy for him. It's just that weird competitive dynamic that is so much different than, hockey or football or some of those kind of team events. And it's, it's very hard to, especially, and I feel like at a younger age, you don't really know how to do the teammate thing very well. You're like, Oh, screw this guy. This guy beat me. Like, he's not my teammate. Totally. Like how is this yeah. whole? So, so the growth that, you know, happens there and everything else and being able to sharpen that, that kind of perfect diamond, no blemishes and everything else. I mean, it's super uh, inspirational to hear. Cool, man. Yeah. It's uh it was a ride. I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid I'm just going to start another story and go on another <laughs> tangent for three hours. So, no, definitely, uh, definitely an, an amazing kind of journey there. But to go back to some of the um, perseverance and, and a little bit of that struggle after Sochi. So, are you planning on doing another uh, Olympic cycle after that, or are you planning on like, okay, I've done three Olympics? I'm going to be done. What, what's that kind of transition there leading right. into obviously uh, the motorcycle accident and then right, yeah. the stroke after that? Yeah. Fun time. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, no, 2014, it just felt like I was dialed. And that was something that like, you know, Gilmore could recognize, the coaches could recognize leading into those Olympics. And that led to, that helped him. I mean, the four years of training together and the Team Diamonds approach helped also, but because I was skating well and I uh, was dialed in the weeks leading up to the Olympics, that helped with that decision, I think, a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just kind of carried from there. And in the 2015 season, I just, I was the first time I ever won the World Cup overall in my career uh, for winning the most uh, 1,500 meters during the season and the best I ever uh, placed in the 1,000 overall. Um, and I won, I won both 1,000 and 1,500 the same competition at the end of the year so that was sort of like a 2015 season and I was like oh, okay I can finally put my hands back and relax like I've got this figured out speed skating is uh is my thing and um if I can just keep this training going and this team dynamic going that we have going another Olympics absolutely I can't wait it's going to be yeah. a funnest 
three or four years of my life because I know how to park my stress. I know how to work with my teammates so that they achieve and so that I achieve. Um, and I can't wait for that to unfold. And I, I should add that um, in 2015, Gilmore um, had one of his best ever placings overall, 500 meters. Mm -hmm. And Laurent de Brule, I think, got uh, third place at World Champs. So it was like really cool. The whole team is, is performing. Um, you know, it's not just it's not just about me anymore, right? It's sure. uh, the whole team was brought up to another level. And then, so that season, like I say, the season always ended in March. And then April, May 7th, I was in the motorcycle crash where basically I was coming this way down the street and someone was driving this way, a uh, set of lights right in front of my face here. And then they turned left in front of me and I hit the side of the car and kind of did, I did some um, mogul skiing acrobatics <laughs> on top oh of the car. Oh my God. And, uh, and I didn't land as nicely as you guys land on your... Uh, feet though I landed up sort of my chin and chest on the asphalt if you will and uh so pretty severe well not severe but a moderate concussion which is uh like a brain bleed with some you know traumatic traumatic brain injury and uh punctured my lung with a pneumothorax and I think I broke my femur on the car I don't remember I don't um or else it was when it smacked into the asphalt after my chin and chest um and then just broke my elbow broke a piece of my spine um and then sprained everything in my jaw and everything in my right knee. I bust my ACL and mm. just did damage globally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh my God. Um, and yeah. And then I woke up in the hospital and I had been on vacation uh, in April in New Zealand. And, you know, they do a quick questionnaire to see where your head's at. I'm like, Oh, uh, do you know what happened? I'm like, no idea. Do you know where you are? No idea. I'm assuming I'm, Looks like I'm in a hospital. I'm like, you know what city you're in? It's like, I, I think I'm in New Zealand, right? And that was like two, three weeks earlier. So mm -hmm. it was sort of, uh, I think my sister was sitting there and because uh, she was uh, the first one contacted as my emergency response. And she was like, holy snap, like this isn't good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was supposed to go meet her at a comedy show that night. And then she was silly, uh, got called out, got, got the emergency call and left the show and came and visited me at the hospital. So uh, yeah, and I mean, the fever gets a lot of attention, but it was really the knee was my, the thing that slowed down recovery the most because the femur, I, I could send you a photo, but it's like, this is a normal femur. It looked like that. <laughs> it was, uh, oh. And the, the x-ray and you kind of see it and you're like, oh, that bone looks gnarly, but then you think, yeah, but there's also like muscle and fascia, muscle, yeah. all yeah. this stuff. And they're like, and there's these jagged bones, just like, you're like, it's not poking into like a balloon of open air. It's poking into everything. And so um so that combined with they put this this femur nail in through sort of your glute min up here like on your hip yep and then i think the way my uh knee smacked down to the ground i like tore my vmo the vastus whatever the the teardrop muscle on your knee mm -hmm. um it was basically just like it, it was so weird because i could like it was still like big from because i had been speed skating but it like had no like it wouldn't fire so i could like flex it and you could just push into it it was like just like a beanbag uh, chair it was like, <laughs> and it was like so it was basically a full year of physio to get things back uh back firing and um as you probably know with knee injuries sure you have one yourself you must have had one or five yeah yeah it, it, just one just one luckily oh, uh not yeah, not yeah. <laughs> feel like that's but, like congratulations for yeah almost. exactly <laughs> now for I, I was just curious like did the doctors tell you because of how strong and your, your legs were and everything else that, I mean, that, 
I mean, could it have been a lot worse on your legs and everything else if the fact you weren't in such top physical condition? Or because uh, I'm just kind of, I kind of feel like, you know, you have such huge thighs and everything else to, for generating all that power and everything in the speed scan. I mean, it had to help, um, help you with the recovery or at least help with, with some of that injury there. I expected it. They, they kind of said that. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. if I was, I mean, I mean, I, I don't That's remember a... them saying anything specifically, but <laughs> yeah. they said things that alluded to that. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it would have cushioned the blow a little bit, right? <laughs> like, bit, right. I, don't, I don't know, would my leg have been ripped entirely off? Like, I don't know. I don't know what <laughs> could have happened or if I could have been dead. Um, but I don't know. I think brain trauma is one thing that no matter how strong my legs are, my, my head was smacked pretty good. And uh, yeah. but did you have a helmet on? I did. Yeah. Full face. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a good thing. I, it's weird because I don't remember, like, I don't. I didn't remember anything, obviously, like I mentioned with the New Zealand trip, but like the more I've rethought the accident, which, you know, I'll do fairly regularly. Yeah. Like the more I'm building a narrative of how it unfolded. And at first I just had snapshots mm -hmm. of what I know were like, or what I think were memories. Yeah. And then I've just filled in the blanks with what's now I've repeated it so many times in my own head that it, now that's the memory that I think has happened. Gotcha. Um, but I remember one snapshot was where I, I assume I was flipping in the air because I remember seeing the sky and then seeing like the stop the street lights like at eye level with me. And then the next flash I see is just the asphalt just coming at me, you know? Oh. And, uh, and so, yeah. And then I remember my full face helmet, like being like, you know, smushed and my head getting cranked and all that stuff. So yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. And ultimately they think that that's because of the way I landed and all the trauma with all the internal bleeding and the mm -hmm. liver and kidneys were bleeding and then the lung was punctured, yada, yada. Um, they think that that was the cause of the tear in my carotid artery in my neck, right at the base of my skull. And that was a year later that that caused uh, the stroke to occur. And, uh, and that was, it was just so weird because, you know, the motorcycle crash was like maximum pain. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, I, you know, I was incapacitated. I was on the couch. I was icing my knee every day and getting, you know, the first day I could ride my bike was before I was off crutches. And it was the most liberating, glorious feeling in the world to just move through the air. And mm -hmm. that was, uh, that was maybe the best memory <laughs> post accident, you know, was uh, feeling the breeze, feeling that exactly. Yeah. And feeling a little bit of, uh, just a little bit of like, oh, I can go anywhere again, like, you know, versus like being locked in my house. But, uh, and then, you know, rehab is important to talk about, but it was just long and ongoing. And I'm super lucky to have like an entire team of people at my disposal kind of to, uh, to help me. And I mean, they're having weekly meetings, you know, to figure out progress and next steps and yeah. create, uh, you know, how it is with, uh, so how long, how long was that, that road to recover of kind of getting through the knee and, and everything else from, so around May 7th and you go through, you do surgery and how long was kind of that, that process in total? I don't remember exactly when I got back on ice, but, uh, we're biking to the oval to go skate. And they told me I had to wear a helmet because of the, the traumatic brain injury. And so I wore a TT helmet <laughs> with like a long back tail. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. But uh, 
Um, and then I did end up racing in the March at the end of the season at the oval finale. Okay. And I skated like a respectable time. Like my PB is a 107, uh, one, and I skated a 109, three or something like that. Okay. Um, which, you know, at the time, if you didn't skate a 107, you weren't going to be on the World Cup podium. Mm-hmm. Um, a 109, you probably wouldn't make the Canadian team, right? Gotcha. But, uh, it was still like given ten, the ten, so it's about ten months. Yeah, yeah, yeah ten months. Ten, ten months. And then because I had missed, and we had I talked about the you know the graph of in, uh, volume training and stuff. I missed all the volume training that season, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so after that race, basically me and my girlfriend at the time planned to bike the Arizona Trail, which is an eight hundred mile mountain bike. Uh, it's like a backpacking, but we bike packed it because we loaded our bikes with gear and food and camping equipment and stove and everything required. And we biked the 800 miles from the Mexico border to the Utah border mm-hmm. and uh, over 20 days, which was, again, that's a whole other story. I could go into a one hour discussion of every single day of that trip with all the <laughs> setbacks and ups and downs that trip had on its own. But we got to the end and uh, a friend from Calgary had driven down to like pick us up. Mm-hmm. stay overnight in St. George and then was going to drive us back the next day yeah. and in the morning I woke up feeling kind of weird and uh, I remember brushing my teeth and like having toothpaste just kind of pouring out of my mouth and I I think I usually brush my teeth with my left hand but then I was like why does this feel so weird and then I was like onto my right hand and then I'm drooling and and I was like ah I must just be groggy you know when I had yeah. breakfast and we started driving from St. George to Salt Lake City is like three hours and we stopped for gas and I got out of the car to fill up with gas and my uh, saddle kept like flinging off my left foot as uh-huh. I was walking I was kind of dragging my foot and then just like it was just limp right yeah and, uh, still couldn't figure out what was going on and Josie and the other friend that was driving us were like okay we're taking the hospital like I was like reluctant I'm just like you know the stereotypical old man like I'm fine fine like I'm drooling <laughs> like like I tried to put a jacket on and like I'm like a dog chasing its tail like trying to get my left arm into the armhole like, <laughs> circles like three circles and like nothing anything is wrong so um you know i can laugh about it now a lot but for anyone who's ever gone through stroke you know and i think it's good for all your listeners to know that signs of stroke heart and stroke talks about fast face if it's drooping so i had that we talked about that mm-hmm. um arms if you can't raise both arms in the air evenly then there's an issue uh s is speech so if you're slurring and then t is time Time's of the essence when you have a stroke, so get to hospital immediately because seconds count. Um, and so that's again, I'm super lucky. Uh, Josie forced me to go to the hospital because um, I just wanted to sleep in the back of the car. I was like, hit the road, I'm just gonna sleep. Yeah. <laughs> they took me to the hospital. You know, they brought a wheelchair out. I was like, I'll walk inside, <laughs> and then they sat me down and basically rolled me to an MRI machine. And it's like, yeah, you're having a stroke. Like, and so I got an epinephrine shot and they rushed me to emergency surgery at another hospital um and by the time i got to the other hospital i guess the epinephrine shot is it epinephrine i don't think that's what i'm talking about sorry that's like that's wrong basically like a high dosage of aspirin basically like a blood thinner but okay. it wasn't thrombosis which is they called it a clot buster uh-huh. because of my traumatic brain injury the motorcycle crash here earlier they didn't want to like me have me hemorrhage because <laughs> it'll like break up <clears throat> everything about your body sorry mm-hmm. probably too much info but no no um I'm just trying to think of heparin. Is that it? Yeah, heparin. I think it's like high power aspirin. I don't know, but I basically had spontaneous reperfusion where um, blood started to like reflow, and I gained ability to raise my right arm and stuff. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, yeah, like I say, I, I talk about all this kind of, I'll laugh with you and say about how much of an idiot I look like with my chasing my arm into my arm sleeve and stuff. Uh, but for Josie, it was incredibly scary because, you know, she's wheeling, or they're wheeling me to the hospital and she's walking along telling them what's going on. And I'm like, okay, I'm fine. Yeah, let's check it out. And they're like, okay, raise your arms above your head. And I'm in the wheelchair. And I'm like, okay, like this. And they're like, yeah, that's good. Now close your eyes. And as soon as I close my eyes, my left arm was just like, like, because it was only the visual feedback that like kept me raising the arm. It was a uh, wow. cool little uh, lesson in uh, brain function for me at the time. And uh, I really saw that and, you know, doctors are, you know, nervous for me and stuff. So then I'm in emergency surgery for like two hours and she's just waiting to hear back her three hours. And um, luckily they kept doing the things and turned out I was okay. Stayed at night in the hospital, um, flew back to Calgary and then, planned the surgery a bit more carefully and ended up getting two titanium alloy stents, same material as my nail on my leg, actually. Okay. Um, the carotid artery, one part where the tear was, and then after the tear, there was like a big balloon. Well, not that big, but like big balloon. Okay. Off yeah. the side of the artery, uh, all this pseudoaneurysm. Because um, it was at the base of my skull, if it was on my in my skull or in my cranium, it would have been an aneurysm. And that's mm -hmm. like, those are the strokes that kill people in 30 seconds kind of thing. But... Uh, yeah, so they planned the surgery and it was a success. And then I had to recover from that because they went in for that. They went into my femoral artery in my groin. And as I talked about groin injuries, the speed skating are so prevalent. So um, I stuck a hole in there into my artery. And with a the catheter, they travel all the way up through your arteries back into your aorta. And then they turn off and go up your carotid. Um, and just like heal it from the inside. It's unbelievable. It was so cool. And I was awake for the whole surgery. Wow. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Like, they had me sedate, like, uh, conscious sedation. So I'm lit sitting there and I'm just like, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> but, um, it's well, like, I mean, one of the things that just kind of really seems to come through is just your attitude. I mean, you get such a positive kind of attitude dealing with such, I mean, um, unbelievable circumstances and everything else. I mean, it seems like you're pretty cheery about the whole experience and I'm sure it wasn't so, so cheery at the time. There's gotta be some uncertainty there. And with your, with your now girlfriend at the time, now wife, I mean, that has to be yeah. quite, quite the experience that you two kind of go through. And at the time, were you trying to keep it uh, lighthearted or what? I mean, is, I mean, that, cause that does kind of seem to be your personality. You do kind of seem. Yeah, like there's, there's one. Uh, thing that happened shortly after we, before we went to the hospital, but or after I started with my arm into my jacket, I think that I tried with my sunglasses on my head and they were like just a skew. And it just, I looked like uh, Peter Griffin from Family Guy when he's having a stroke, you know, and I'm making these jokes and then I laughed at one of my own jokes. And I literally can't even reproduce it for you here because it's like, it's offensive. But like, and then I laughed at how I laughed and I like went over the top with the offensive nature of the joke. <laughs> even though I was having a stroke. And <laughs> so I basically had like a laughing fit, but, uh, but it was sort of just like, yeah, I won't do it. But <laughs> so that, I guess I kept it lighthearted there. And then ultimately though, I think, you know, everything I learned in speed skating and through sport was now coming like, okay, prove it. You know, I've talked to tons of schools and, and charity organizations and, uh, you know, kids and youth, trying to inspire them to like chase your dreams, never give up on your dreams, mm -hmm. um, you know. And then there's that whole motto I said with the team was what's important now. And it was like, those are all like, okay, prove it. You know, what is important now? Like right now it's important for me to lay in a hospital bed 
with an EKG on overnight mm -hmm. uh, to check my vitals. And then it's going to be important for me to get surgery. And then um, following surgery, it's important for me to like make sure that my groin heals and that I don't bring my heart rate above a very low threshold because the stents could move if I started training too soon. Mm -hmm. That's what I meant to get to earlier. The motorcycle crash was like pure pain, but the stroke was zero pain, but like all mental, yeah. um, like mentally challenging in whatever ways. Right. And mm -hmm. all this self doubt, I don't, you know, I'm questioning, you know, what is reality anymore and stuff. Like, am I really, did I really have a stroke? Like, is you know like all these thoughts are going through your head because you're like sure. um i don't know it was really weird and uh but yeah but then just staying focused what's important now and what are the steps i can take and i guess it was after the motorcycle crash that i started and it never caught on or anything but i started putting hashtag small victories with every single one of my mm -hmm. like you know the first time i walked without crutches the first time i rode my bike it was a small victory small victories and then it built up to that first race that I mentioned mm -hmm. um at the end of the season 10 months after the crash it was like that, that's a small victory like no it's not gonna be a, a national team it's not gonna be a World Cup podium but you know I'll, ca I'll count that as a victory today sure and, uh, and so then that stroke kind of reset everything so I couldn't raise my heart rate above 100 um I have a low heart rate anyways so it's, so it's no problem but um and then it was got up to 120 and I was like okay I can I can ride my bike with my heart rate below 120 Mm -hmm. um, and I think the week, because every week it would raise by five beats during my recovery and my max yeah. heart rate is like 190, let's say. Um, and so once it raised to 130, I was like, okay, hey, I need to get that aerobic back just like I did. That's why I did the Arizona trail with Josie kind of was I want to get some of that aerobic uh, work back. And now I was like, well, I'm going to bike to Edmonton from Calgary because I need to get some more aerobic in and I can do some aerobic just like dawdle along. I think it took yeah. me like seven hours or something, but um, wait, no, it took more than that whatever yeah for 12 <laughs> hours yeah i did over two days so it was two times six hour days or whatever but so how long is that does that period take and when are you back competing again and what it, what is that feeling like after you've kind of come full circle and and you're finally you know with those small victories small victory because i mean i imagine that preparation and then you're finally back getting to race once again that's good. That's, that's a big victory. That's not a small one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But at that point, it's like just a small step, right? It's yeah, right, right. going from the hospital bed to racing, you know, it's sure. been this series of just like tiny, the tiniest of uh, improvements or progressions to get right. to that point of racing. And, and one of those progressions uh, just before racing, of course, was going on ice and doing like a maximum effort, right. And letting my heart rate go to whatever it goes to. I don't wear a heart rate monitor when I skate, but mm -hmm. I know it's high and I know that, you know, if I pass out when I'm going 60k an hour around a corner, it's not going to be a pretty landing, right? And sure. so you have all these doubts. And then I had like, you know, I, I did have some slight, you know, not like nerve issues, but like my left foot and my left foot, all this left on my body that was affected by the stroke temporarily, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, I just wasn't confident in it, you know? I was at shortly after the stroke, I was drinking a glass of water out of my left hand let's say um, let's say it's like this mm -hmm. and it just like dropped out of my hand like without like I, I was I'm holding it you know and then I'm looking away I'm talking to someone and it just like fell out of my hand and spilled everywhere and you know things like that don't give you a lot of confidence sure. when you're going around a turn at a you know a 30 degree angle at 60k an hour putting on a one millimeter blade 
um, putting out, you know, 1200 watts of power kind of thing. So um, that was nerve wracking. And then also like, will my, you know, will the stents hold up or will I be dead soon? Yeah. Like that goes through your head, you know, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But again, circle back, like the teammates, you know, um, not just the teammates on the ice with me, not just the coach on the ice or the sports psychologist, but like there's all the physiotherapist, massage, chiro, um, osteopathy, and they're all like governed by a, um, the team doctor and then our physiologist who's like helping write the program with the coach. And they're all having these weekly meetings and, you know, they're devised this plan, the 10 beats per week sort of thing over uh, three, four months mm -hmm. or more. Um, and so during that, you know, as the heart rate was coming up, I was able to do some dry land and get down into species seating position off the ice and, and then on the ice and then, you know, on the ice in sweatpants and then I'm on the ice in a skin suit and then I'm on the ice uh, skating a lap solo and then I can keep up with the group skating laps, uh, a little faster and a little faster and a little faster and um it's it i mean it, it's almost cheesy but it's like it is like it was like inspirational for myself because it's like it made me reinvigorated like when i was a child again like oh I, now i can do the next best thing or the next thing and the next thing mm -hmm. and rather than just like wanting to get out there and race on day one like that's obviously not a thing so at what point do we take and break it down and and I had this whole team of people to like break it down for me and to write the program and to say, this is allowable. This is not yet. Mm -hmm. Let's do that. And tomorrow we can do that. And, uh, it really helps again with the mental aspect of it and the, the coping of it. Right. Um, yeah, but, and that's like the, the performance side of it, but then there's a whole office side of it and the psyche in your own head that's going on for like two years now that, yeah. you know, that's, uh, that's one of the hardest part of victories is like, maybe the stigma you feel from others or this, the stigma that's in your own head uh, right. from the, the scenario. So, um, yeah. It's a lot of those. It's, it's definitely about that journey. You know, it's the daily step in and, you know, people see the mountaintop and you actually have to go through that, that kind of daily process to get that mount to get to that mountaintop or to get back to that race. And then exactly. There's no chairlift. You still have to, you have to walk up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One, one day, one step at a time. And that can be frustrating because yeah, there are setbacks along the way. It's not just yeah. like, it's okay. Here's the steady progression. And here we are. Exactly. And it's a whole, a whole lesson in patience for me. Right. Cause uh, like I said, early in my career, I had my brother, Two years later, I'm going to go that fast. Two years later, I'm going to go that fast. And then the Calgary had one of the best coaches, like off the top, he coached Olympic gold medalists, right? Mm -hmm. And I had that coach right away. I trusted him. Boom, boom, boom. They're my first Olympics. And uh, yeah. And then boom, boom, boom. Next Olympics. I mean, obviously some, some little setbacks there with wanting to quit speed sitting forever, but want a gold medal. And then, um, you know, just live and learn. And yeah. And what is that experience like for your, for Sochi in, you know, 2018 and in, uh, or no, uh, yeah. What, what was that kind of, uh, like for you coming full circle? Because I mean, you had the boot, I mean, you had the, the, the downtrodden times you go motorcycle accident into stroke and then the long, uh, you know, journey the day in day out. And just to be able to go into that opening ceremonies there and, and, Korea, I mean, it just had to be uh, unbelievable. Just, just making me talk about it makes me think, like, man, I mean, you know, it's got to be quite, it's quite the story. It's quite the experience to be back in an opening, closing ceremonies, experience in the games again, and you know. and then I was married at the time too, because uh, to Josie, who also qualified for the Olympics 
2018. So it was uh, as, a, as a speed skater. So it was very, very cool. I think aspect of it as well is like, you know, don't forget that life goes on, right? That's kind of, uh, that was something that I learned maybe in 2010 was like just keeping a balance in life, not to get too far off track, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was wild. What did I want to talk about, about the recovery towards Korea? Yeah. In 2017, World Champs was in Korea to mm -hmm. prepare for the Olympics. And, um, there's like four guys who are on our team pursuit team and I was back in the running now and they sent me just to get the Olympic a feel for the venue and stuff like that. Right. Testing. And to me skate. And I was skating, you know, better and better, but was I at the level uh, that I need to be at to skate world champs? Um, probably not. And that's uh, <laughs> so they put um, the youngest kid on our team, Ben Donnelly, they put him in and I think the team got fourth and I was like, oh, nice coaching them. And uh, it was uh, a whole different experience for me to be at world champs kind of in a coaching role, I guess, mm -hmm. or um, to be there for my team uh, in a different way. And, uh, like to fully just give something back, I guess. Um, it also reminded me of in Torino, I skated the first, there's four rounds in Torino of the team pursuit and I skated the first three, which we won, made it at the gold medal final. And then they took me out to save me for the individual events or whatever. Right. And it's, it's heartbreaking because you want to, you want to race, you train your whole life for that. Sure. And, uh, and so then in 2018, 2017, sorry, at the, near the end of my career and they took me out and, um, but now it's like, a little bit older, a little more maturity. And you're like, this is the right move. Like mm -hmm. we definitely do this. And, uh, super cool to see Ben get his first world champs race under his belt and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then in the next season, me, Ben and Ted, uh, broke the Canadian record, which was my Canadian record with my team from 2007. <laughs> and so it was so cool to see this team come together and, uh, break a, a decade old Canadian record. And, uh, the same world cup, this was, um, in December, like, before the Olympics in February. Mm -hmm. um, at the same World Cup, I skated a 142.98 or something like that, which uh, was the world record in 2002 Olympics by Derek Carr. Okay. Um, and I don't know how to put this in context for any listeners who don't know speed skating, but basically my PB is 142.01, and that was a world record in 2008 when I got it. Um, it's it's, it's freaking fast now, but... Um, relative to my own personal best, I was within a second, mm -hmm. and uh, I got fifth of that World Cup, you know, three months before the Olympics. So, uh, Pyeongchang was, of course, a highlight, but that World Cup was probably the highlight of my recovery. Like, uh, okay, yeah, um, getting you know, no other Canadian to date has skated a 142 point anything. So, um, apparently, that was my 13th 142 of my career, and it was cool, like. Again, coming from where I was down here to like build back, yes, July to Gilmore or something. I was like, I'm gonna skate a 142 this year. I can feel it, like you know, like that upbeat sort of positive, optimistic attitude. Mm -hmm. So it's still like almost a full second off my PB, and that's as close as I ever got. And uh, fifth was as close as I ever got to the podium. Um, at the Olympics, I think I got 13th. Um, but you know, that's uh, just getting to the Olympics, like you say, was the magical thing for me. Um, and I it's hard to put into context like viewers or listeners can probably understand like yeah it would be difficult the stroke of crash but like imagine thinking about that every day for three years <laughs> and you yeah. know um it just the mental part of it was uh you know the trickiest part not to say that my mental health coach wasn't really good at his job to keep me in my head up sure. to run straight yeah but like the physical therapists 
basically did the work for me. You know, I, I sure I could go to the weight room and lift weights and I would tell them all oh, this pain and this motion. And they'd be like, okay, well, let's, let's fix it. Let's strengthen these muscles so that you don't have pain through that range of motion. And you know what I mean? There's always an answer. Yeah. Um, but it's mental, a little bit more tricky. <laughs> yeah. Mental health is tricky. There's not always, it's not just like here, uh, do this or meditate or, I mean, obviously meditate, sleep, drink water. I don't want to discourage people from doing all those things, but <laughs> it's uh, it, going back to grit. It's like, it's, it's this relentless every day. You know, you can't bank it for later. Doing it one day doesn't mean you're not going to have to continue uh, working hard the next day in order to achieve your goals, especially with uh, mental health. I think. Now from speed skating and now kind of into life, what are some of those habits that, that you've kind of taken and, and carry over now, as you kind of go towards your, your, uh, pursuit of a medical, you know, career in, in medicine and being a doctor and things of that nature. And I know we saw a little bit of the, the habit, the breakdown when you're going in for your interview and stuff yeah. like that, but kind of, what are, what are some of those other things that really kind of helped you or, or some takeaways that you kind of use now? Well, it's especially pertinent right now. Cause I just heard back that I wasn't accepted this, this, uh, cycle, I guess. So I'll reapply next year. Mm -hmm. um but just remembering patience i guess which of course is harder to hear every time you get another year older you're getting another year closer to 40 but uh uh patience uh it was the big one from the stroke but then in uh, and also like from 2010 teamwork and stuff like that um but from 2010 i wanted to talk about uh balance too that i learned like in 2010 my sole focus was on this pinnacle of sport this i want to make uh, I want to get to the top of the podium, win an Olympic gold medal. I want to win three Olympic gold medals in 2010. And, you know, everyone's going to help me do it. It's all about me and my achievement. Right. Um, and there was not a plan, not a single day I had planned after the Olympics, basically. It was just like this uh, wormhole, this uh, black hole of dead space. Um, and so when I applied, you know, they always tell you, you know, have a backup plan, make sure you're, you're taking a degree you like and whatnot. And so... I do this backup plan where even before I decided to attempt medical school, um, you know, my main focus was I want to circle back into speed skating or into sport in some aspects. So if I'm a doctor, it'll be sport medicine, uh, but I'm taking psychology so that I can uh, do my master's and maybe come back in as a sports psychologist in some ways and, uh, you know, and help others in the way that my sports psychologist and my team therapists have helped me uh, over the course of my career with that we discussed today. Mm -hmm. No, and I think it's great that that balance is definitely a great uh, takeaway and one thing that people can get caught up in in athletics and just see, not be able to see kind of the the forest through the trees there and just kind yeah. of get stuck on some of those little things and and everything else. Uh, Probably could have balanced my speed and career more with school, but <laughs> um, but yeah, because it's so easy to have a singular focus, and then when it was working for me and stuff, you know, I. I can say now that I've definitely have encouraged people not to go to school if they want to achieve their best results in sport. Cause it just looks so cut and dry on, on paper for me. Right. Um, that as I tapered off school, my speaking results went like this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think that that's, I don't know. There's so many little pieces of advice I've given in the past that I would change now how I talk about them. Cause I don't think that's the most sound advice for an athlete to, to hear. Mm -hmm. Maybe just choose your spots. I think is a good, good piece of advice whether that's like partying you can do that before the competition or after like obviously after but yeah for school you can uh maybe don't take as many courses olympic season but you can you know 
capitalize on post Olympic season or something like that. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also changed. I mean, so much school. Uh, I mean, when I f- was going in, going to college, and doing a ski career, I mean, you didn't really have the option of like online school wasn't really like a thing. Right. Kind of, you know. So, so how much that's changed in the last few years? I mean, it's definitely. Uh, easier than it's ever been, especially with COVID and everything else. I mean, there's so much yeah. online and lectures and, and it does give you kind of that freedom. And there are points in time when you're traveling or anything else where you do have a little bit of time in the room to be able to do one class or, you know, totally. at least. And also I think that that helps take a little bit of the pressure off and, you know, give, give you a little bit of something rather than just focusing on the training and just focus, you know, it, it allows you to give a little bit of, little bit of release which i think can can kind of be kind of be healthy i mean depending on the person kind of depending depending on the athlete absolutely though just so your mind can relax from the sport for a bit because a lot of people get stuck on whatever training or performance you know just mulling over and over it so much that it's not quality visualization like i was talking about the night before i do one visualization of my Mm -hmm. race and that's it but if you just mull it over and over it's uh i do so having uh positive distraction like school um Mm -hmm. good and when i talk about balance although i didn't use school as as my balancing aspect which in hindsight would have been nice to have a few more courses under my belt um i would often like plan a trip for the (laughs) postseason and that was like like and those are like pretty quality trips where i'd like bounce around europe or something like that sure and actually in 2015 right before my motorcycle crashed the the thing i planned was my brother's bachelor party and it was just like one of the best times of our lives. I <laughs> think uh, just took a lot of coordinating with different people and, you know, mm-hmm. um, be able to spend time doing that. It was like a complete escape from sport and just all this excitement for like, oh yeah, world championships, I'm going to escape that and, you know, the final world cup, but then I'm going and I'm uh, doing this trip and then I'm going to hop back to my brother's bachelor party and have all his friends from all over Canada show up and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so no, it's awesome. Give, give you something to kind of look forward to. And yeah. is, is there anything, any other kind of words of wisdom you have for, for people out there kind of um, navigating either through sport or the transition from sport kind of into, uh, into the real world, I guess, as uh, people would put it. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll skip back to the 2018 Olympics, maybe uh, just to, uh, just to conclude. Um, you mentioned the opening ceremonies and I just, cause I go on my ramblings, I didn't get there, but uh, the opening ceremonies, uh, they planned to have a, a camera come and talk to, to me and Josie, but it was only, only being me, I think, for some reason. It was like, we are in the stands, so we walked in, we did the march together, me and Josie, arm in arm, uh, Canadian flag in front of us, right? Crowd full of cheering fans, it was pretty, pretty sweet. And then to have this realization, like, okay, like everything we just discussed, it's like, we're here now. How'd that happen, right? And that was basically, that was basically the question that, um you know a camera is in your face with big bright light and you're in this dark crowd and it's like kind of like oh like the lights are on i'm really here like this is live coverage from the opening ceremonies and they were asking uh you know what's it feel like like after all you've been through what's it feel like to, been, to be here and uh i might be paraphrasing myself a bit but um the two things i wanted to get out or that i recall getting out in some form um was you know Joe's and I aren't here in spite of what we've been through, but because of what we've been through. And so like, yeah, I, I had a motor crash and a stroke, but putting myself through the physio and uh, having the grit to, to maintain that day-to-day uh, commitment to the process, that's, that's why I'm here. Not in spite of the, the other things, but because of 
what I've been through. That's why we're here. And, uh, and I think as I said something else, like things don't happen for a reason, things happen because of a reason. And so, you know, if, if you want to get to the Olympics, then what's, you know, how, how are you going to do it? Just put the work in. Those are kind of old school messages, I guess, nowadays, but, um, but yeah. Still ring true. I, sorry? I said they still ring true though. They rang true for me. <laughs> um, and so, but one thing I've definitely learned with preparing for med school or um, just doing school in general is that, you know, people have their own study habits, people have their own training habits and different methods work for different people, depending, literally depending on what works for them, even if that's taking courses uh, during competition works for a lot of athletes and I think sets them up for a better post uh, career, post athletic career career. So um, I think balancing what works for you with um, what will give you the best results and with what the experts say um, will give everyone to help everyone find their niche and the right path that can help them achieve maximal performance. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you uh, so much for so much for taking the time, man. I really do uh, do appreciate it. And and before we go, which uh, which charity are we going to be uh, donating to today on your behalf? Well, Crystal Phillips introduced me to you. She was on the show a few episodes ago, and uh, so she works with uh, Branch Out Neurological Foundation, and she started that charity before I had my stroke. But it really hits close to home now that um, I've had a stroke, and a lot of the groundbreaking research they're doing. Um, has gone on to create devices. Um, like I said, I got two stents in my neck earlier, but they're creating devices with, through this research. Um, it's making stents that dissolve rather than leaving metal in your body, they're gonna dissolve into your biology. So uh, that's just one example of um, how this charity um, will affect people like me in, in the future and the positive work they're doing to, uh, to find new groundbreaking research, so. Yeah, no. So, and she's awesome. Crystal's great. And it really is. I mean, she went through just a, she just touched on a few of the different projects that they're doing and it really is incredible work that they're, that they're going. So it's going to be amazing to see what those uh, advancements are going to be. Well, Danny, thank you so much for taking the time. I really do uh, appreciate it. Thanks so much, Bobby. All right. Bye everybody. Hey everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. And if you're watching or listening on YouTube, please make sure you hit that bell button so you get notified every time a new episode drops. Thanks.